well, everything I've said is true. I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from anything that we've, we've said already. By principle, uh, and by, uh, by the, the application of the statement of the text, what I've said is, is what it means. But actually, these verses are referring, I think, to something specific. Even though they say, in everything, and because in everything, it's true in everything, but I think that in the context, they're referring to a specific situation, and I'd love for us to get a sense of that. Okay, so just take a few minutes and think through the book of Philippians as a whole, and then we'll come back to these two verses in their context, and I think what we'll discover is that there's a richness here that perhaps we've missed by treating verses as standalone thoughts. Is that okay if we do that? Now, Book of Philippians, any, what do we know about it? Anyone aware of any facts? Who wrote it to who, when? Any quick brainstorming on Philippians? Okay, so Paul, Paul and Timothy. Right, written to who? Okay, and where was Philippi? Anybody know? A Roman colony over in Macedonia. Yeah, so uh, Paul had been there on his second journey. He met Lydia. Remember Lydia, the seller of purple? And uh, she'd been the sort of convener of a, of a prayer gathering and, and uh, one of his first places in Europe that he came to and the church was planted there and what was the tone of the letter? Just if, if you know. The positive, negative, critical, encouraging? What, what do we have? Contentment. Sorry? Contentment. Contentment comes through. Joy is a big theme, that's right. Generally, it's positive, yeah? This is Paul's most personal, warm letter to, of, of all the churches that he writes to. Um, where was Paul when he wrote it? Anyone there? So he's in prison, and he's writing about joy and contentment. So that's interesting. So he's in prison in Rome, and he wrote several letters, including Philippians. Sometimes we refer to the letter to the Philippians as a missionary thank you letter. But why was that? What had they done for Paul? They'd sent him some money, some help. And so basically the situation was that Paul was in prison in Rome... And the Philippian church had heard about it, and they were concerned. They were concerned, they were discouraged, in fact. And so they were concerned for him, and they were discouraged a little bit themselves, and so they sent him a gift. Uh, in those days, the prisoners didn't have uh, television in their cells. You know, it was kind of, your friends provide your food. And so they're sending a gift, which he would then spend on being able to survive. So it's a very loving thing to do. And, and he's in prison... Uh, and they've sent this gift with one of their leaders, Epaphroditus. And actually, while Epaphroditus is visiting, he falls ill. Norovirus, who knows? And he's ill in Rome, and the church back of Philippi hears about that, and they're distressed, and he's distressed, and everyone's distressed. Uh, and so Paul writes a letter that we have, the letter to the Philippians, to say thank you for the gift, and also to encourage them that his circumstances are okay. It's, God's working something bigger out here. He wants them to know that his circumstances serve to advance the gospel. And at the same time, he wants to encourage them and try to get some momentum going for them because he senses or he knows from Epaphroditus that, well, they seem to have maybe lost a little bit of momentum. 
They're facing some pressures. They too are facing some negative, challenging circumstances. And he also knows that under pressure, loss of momentum, all these things combine and there's a little bit of internal tension. And so he writes to them. And the letter is a flowing letter. It begins in the normal way Paul and Timothy to the church at, including the elders and deacons, and he goes through all the kind of standard steps. I thank God every time I think of you and thank God for their giving spirit and their care and their concern for him, and he's concerned for them. And that's a big theme all the way through, their concern for each other. It's lovely to read through that. And then he talks about his biographical information in chapter 1. It's all the introduction stuff saying, look, I want you to know that my imprisonment has served for the advance of the gospel. God's work is still going forward. Don't panic. Okay, so he expresses that in chapter 1. And by the end of the chapter, he gets to his main point for the whole letter. This won't be on the screen, but maybe you'd just like to sneak a a little peek back at the end of chapter 1. After his personal biographical information, verses 27 to 30 really give you the heart of the book. Let me just read a little bit of this. He says, whatever, I'll read it all. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that, and here's the two big themes of the book, that you stand firm in one spirit contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And so there's these two themes, okay? He wants them to... Uh, be united, to be one. He doesn't want them squabbling and falling out with each other. He wants them united together and he wants them to stand firm. That is, not to stand still, but to stand firm uh, and essentially to be pressing on in the advance of the gospel. Okay, so those two themes, the unity and the steadfastness are the two themes that he's going to develop in the book. So in chapter 2, he takes unity. He says, look, I want you to put each other first. Put each other's interests first. You want to know what that looks like? Let me give you an example. Jesus, he put other people's interests first. Let me give you another example. Me, Paul. And he talks about himself as an example. Then he says, okay, you want another example? Let me give you Timothy. He is one who looks out for other people's interests. In fact, you want to know somebody else? Epaphroditus, he does too. And so the whole of the second chapter is about unity that comes from people putting the other first. It's true, isn't it? If we put each other first, it brings unity, doesn't it? It's when we look out for ourselves that we start dividing and becoming tense with each other. And then chapter 3, he goes on to speak about this standing firm, this steadfastness, uh, this relying on God, not on ourselves, and pressing on toward the goal, so that when you get to chapter 4, verse 1, which technically is the end of chapter 3. They put the chapter number in the wrong place, I think. He finishes chapter 4, verse 1. He finishes this section by saying, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Feels like the end of the section, right? Standing firm in the Lord. Now, chapter 4 is the conclusion. 
Two and three are the big two themes, unity and steadfastness after the introduction, and four is the conclusion. I love how simple Philippians is. Uh, and I encourage you, read it through and, and get a feel for it again uh, after tonight. It will be worth doing. Uh, and so then in chapter four, from verses two to nine, he's summarizing again what he said, but he's also getting more specific in terms of application. And we see that because he's again going to talk about unity and how can we stand firm together in the church at Philippi. How are they going to do that? And he's going to speak to them about a specific situation. He hinted at it before in chapter 2, but now he becomes explicit. 4 verse 2. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. So there's these two women. And they're in the church and they've fallen out with each other. I remember hearing uh, one person preach. He said that maybe we mis- mispronounced these. Maybe their names were odious and soon touchy. And uh, it's kind of funny, but it's not true. But uh, odious and soon touchy, that, that is often true of people in church in other places, right? Not here, of course, but in other places. It's sad that churches have a reputation for relational breakdown we think about peace with God last week, we think about peace on earth thinking about Christmas peace what a travesty it would be if the church itself were not a great big advertising hoarding for God's peace but often it isn't it doesn't take much does it for two people to fall out, we don't know what had happened with these two Uh, our family when we're traveling we like to, we, we love the sight of a soft play place. You know, especially when the children were younger, we're driving in America, it seemed like every, uh, every few miles until you needed one, then a very long time, you'd find a McDonald's with a soft play place. Now, McDonald's is not the best food option, I can assure you, in America, but a soft play place, when you've been in a car with children strapped in, who ever thought of strapping children in? In my day, we ran free. But strapped in for hours on end, they need to vent some energy. It's kind of like walking a dog. It's just a healthy thing. And so when we find a soft play place, we, we get, pull over and we let them in and they'd think it was this great treat and Melanie and I would go, oh, what a relief. And they'd go in and the beauty of a soft play place is that you basically can't hurt yourself, right? You, you kind of bounce off the walls, you can roll down the slopes, you can climb the big kind of rubbery type ladder things and there's little plastic balls they can be thrown around you can basically do whatever you want and more or less you're not going to get hurt at least not seriously now children in a confined space usually find a way to hurt each other but of course mine did never did that Um, but but really a soft play place is a place where you're not going to end up in trouble that's the point of them the church is not a soft play place ever notice that it doesn't take much to create tension between people in a church. This isn't a place where we can say whatever we feel, where we can say whatever we think, where we can do whatever we please, and it's not going to create a problem. I can pretty much guarantee that if you go selfish for a day, you will create a problem at church, because this is no soft play place. This is the real world. And this is where where lives can so easily fall. Isn't it true? Odia, what's her name? Euodia and Syntyche. It could have been the smallest thing and they've fallen out and it's not getting fixed. And so Paul, from hundreds of miles away, writes and he pleads with them. This strikes me that these two 
they're obviously significant within the church uh, setting. He's going to refer back to their past ministry in, in a minute, but, but actually they're, they're not elders. They're not official leaders in the church. They're two non-leaders in the church at Philippi, and their names have been recorded for eternity as a witness to us that we make a difference. You might say, well, I'm not an elder. It doesn't matter. I'm not significant around here. Euodia and Syntyche say you are. And if you fall out with somebody at Ladyfield, if you create dissension and discord within the church, that is serious, serious enough to get into the Bible. And so Paul pleads with them to agree with each other in the Lord. And verse 3, he doesn't just leave it to them. He says, yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Whoever this loyal yoke fellow is, we don't know. It could be Epaphroditus. It could be the, one of the leaders of the church. It could be the church community being referred to. We don't know, but notice what we do know. Paul is saying the tension between them is so important that you can't just leave them to sort it out. You've got to help. Now, if there's any weakness in this culture, and it's my own culture, and I'm glad I'm English, but if there's any weakness in our culture, it's our tendency to sweep interpersonal issues under the rug and pretend that all is well and things will fix themselves. Let's just pretend everything's fine. No, let's be biblical. And let's have the courage and the faith and the gentleness and the wisdom to step in and to help when we're aware that two people are avoiding each other, two people are tense with each other. We need to help restore that relationship for the health of the church. I love how he finishes this. You know, these, these women, they were working with me. They were striving with me in the gospel. And now they're caught up in this petty dispute. Their names are in the book of life. That's sort of a bottom line that really does cut through it all, doesn't it? You're in the book of life. I mean, let's face it, when Jesus comes and we step into eternity, do we really think that the petty squabbles of local church are going to carry on for eternity? I hope not. I don't think so. I suspect that a lot of us in that day will go, oh, what a fool I've been. It so wasn't worth it. And I think that's what Paul wants them to realize. It seems like they've lost their momentum. They used to be engaged in the gospel, engaged in the work. You know, that's a danger. When a church loses its sense of being on a mission, then infighting will always break out. when, When we lose the sense that we're not here for ourselves, we're here for him, and we're here to reach others, if we lose that sense, then we'll start thinking that we're here to give our opinions. And that actually what really matters is my choice of music versus your choice of music or my choice of carpet versus your choice of carpet or my choice of Christmas tree versus your choice for no Christmas tree. And suddenly all the the petty issues of church life bubble to the surface. And when we go, hang on a second, what are we here for? Suddenly those things fade and pale. And I think Paul wants them to get back on, on target. And so watch what happens in the following verses because he doesn't really change subject. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Isn't there a tendency when there's a squabble going on with someone to say, well, I would be happy if only he or she did such and such. And we blame them for our lack of joy. 
And Paul said, no, no, no. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Let me say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Not in whether that person agrees with you or not. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. See, he's still on the same subject. Let your gentleness, the way you deal with each other, let it be evident to all. The Lord is near. When he comes, this is going to seem so petty. Drop it. Deal with it. Come on. Let's be united with one another. Verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything. Isn't it true that when there's a, a falling out with somebody, it's never just in the moment of conversation that we feel that tension? Isn't that the case? That, that if, if I fall out with somebody here on Sunday evening, I'm going to go home and I'm going to be churning. And that churning will continue Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And so I think this is completely relevant to what Paul's talking about. He's saying don't be anxious. Don't have that inner churning about the situation. Bring it to God. Present your, pre present your requests You've fallen out over some petty issue in church. Bring it to God and present it to him, but do it with thanksgiving. Thankful that he's God. Thankful for, for all the things there are to be thankful about. And then verse 7, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard, notice the plural here, your hearts and your minds. You see, the danger with what we did earlier, as, as true as it was, the danger is that we naturally read the Bible as individuals. That's because of our culture and because of our language. We don't see that where there's a plural incorporated in what's being said. Now Paul is saying that the peace of God here, it will guard your, all of your hearts and your minds. The peace of God will descend on the community as you bring your petitions and your requests to him as you're rejoicing in the Lord, as you're being gentle with one another, and as you're bringing your requests to Him with thanksgiving, you'll discover a peace, a shalom, a kind of a, a healthy set of relationships. Remember the whole idea of peace in the Old Testament is not simply absence of conflict. It's not even simply health and wholeness within. It, it seems to often be tied into this sense of relational health. And that same idea is coming through into the New Testament. Multiple times when Paul talks about peace in the context of church, he's talking about the corporate situation. The peace of God guarding our hearts and minds here or the, the peace of Christ acting as an umpire in Colossians 3. These aren't individual things. In their context, they're speaking of the peace amongst us. And then he goes on, verse 8. Finally, or next, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, what's that about? Well, take it as a verse on its own, it's true. If, if you want to know what to feed your mind on, use that as a checklist. Print that out and stick it next to your television. Do you good. Put it next to your computer screen. Use it as a grid to evaluate because too many of us are feeding our minds with junk all week long and wondering why our lives are tense and struggling and God seems distant. Uh, we can take the verse on its own and apply it and it's true. But in context, what's he saying? I think what he's saying is this. When you're in a, a dispute with somebody, when there's a falling out, 
you don't simply take the facts, no matter how much you claim to be objective. Instead, you read in. Don't you read into situations? He likes me. She doesn't like me. He thinks I'm this. She thinks I'm that. When she said, I know he said this, but he meant that. And we construct all of these motives and explanations for what's churning behind the scenes, you know. And we come up with all this kind of clever stuff. I mean, the conspiracy theories are rife, aren't they, in our own minds in relation to church. Who's doing this and who's doing what and who's trying to achieve with this, that, or the other. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Stick to the facts. What is right about that person? What, what is true and, and noble and pure and lovely? I remember... When I was at Bible school, there was this one student that just grated on me something chronic. I just, to be honest with you, I just struggled with him. His attitude, was, we never even talked, but he just bugged me. I just, oh, he, I was, and I knew everybody else didn't like him too. Of course, you know, you can tell, can't you? And I remember one day sitting with, with another friend, and, and I don't think I was gossiping about him, but obviously it, it showed that I kind of didn't view him very favorably and he Philippians 4 ated me. He didn't quote the verse. He just said, you ever noticed how he treats his wife? Went, no, I never noticed that. He said, watch. Half an hour later, this chap comes in and his wife was there and, and he spoke to her. And I, I watched and I went, oh my. He's tender, he's loving, he's caring. Uh, and the truth of what I observed, just one little truth that I observed in that encounter with his life, softened my heart towards that guy. I was the problem. He wasn't. Well, he partly was, but <laughs> the problem was in me. And once I got off all of my internal thinking about, you know, he's this, he's that, he's the other, and I know why he does this, and I know why he does that, and just dwelt on the truth that I could see, and the positive truth, the things that were admirable and praiseworthy. I, in my heart, I started to praise the way he treated his wife. He, a great husband. And you know what? We became close friends. We became really tight. We had meals together. We had lunches together. We met together as couples. We, we became really... I was, I was sad the day that we had to separate and, and go our separate ways. I look forward to eternity. We're going to laugh together, me and him, I tell you. Why? Well, by the way, one other thing I discovered... I discovered once I got to know him that I didn't know him before. That's obvious, isn't it? But here's the point. I was constructing in my mind all sorts of truths about this chap. Once I discovered the reality, I discovered why he was the way he was. It's always helpful to keep that in mind. When somebody's grating on you, when somebody's bothering you, when there's some sort of fallout, when somebody's rude to you, always keep in mind, I don't know what's going on below the surface. This person may have just heard that you know, some close relative is dying. This person may have just heard that their job's on the line. This person may be struggling with this or with that. You've no idea. And if instead of making up realities, we will just dwell on that which is true and noble and good and praiseworthy and excellent, if we'll dwell on that and remember, I don't know the whole truth about this person, we'll discover that oftentimes the issue wasn't what we thought it was. The tension wasn't what it seemed to be. The, the fight wasn't actually a fight at all. We don't know the whole story. What we do know, we can evaluate with verse 8, and then we can celebrate these things. And then verse 9, just to finish it up, Paul says, Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. 
Okay, so so you've, uh, he said, rejoice in the Lord. He said, be gentle to each other. He said, don't have this internal anxiety, but bring your request to God so the peace of God can guard all of your hearts and minds. He's gone on to say, think about the, the right things. Guard the way you think about situations and the, the, the truths that you read into situations. Guard all of that. And then he says, be a doer of the word. Put into practice what you've been taught. Live it out. Try acting like a Christian. You, you never know what difference it might make. And what's the conclusion? And the God of peace will be with you. I, I don't think he's ever left the theme of disunity. He's calling them to unity and to steadfastness and to, uh, to advancing the gospel together. And in that context, he's urged them not to be anxious but to bring their prayers and petitions with thanksgiving to God. Just a, a quick run through, but I hope that's helpful. Helpful to say, you know, when you see a verse, go back and check the context. And what you'll often find is that what it means is what it means, but it's richer. It's more applied. It's more on target. And here's the beautiful thing. If this passage, if this book, so saturated our lives, our hearts, then, then Lady Field could be the kind of church that it should be. And I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying it could be exactly what it should be. A place characterized by the peace of God. Not just as a truth we affirm, but as a reality we experience in our fellowship with each other. Let's pause and let's just ask God, Lord, in light of this context, is there any convicting that you need to do in my heart? Is there anyone that I need to put things right with? Is there any situation that I need to change? Any perspective? Any, uh, maybe I've been constructing all sorts of ideas. Maybe I've been thinking the worst of somebody. Uh, just bring that to the Lord, and then we'll pray and sing our closing hymn in a moment.